This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled Oneness, recorded February 27th, 2011, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, as I said earlier, the uh, talking about oneness, we hear this all the time. We hear how all is one. We hear the terms like non-dual awareness. Just to remind us that this is a very kind of ubiquitous teaching, I'm going to just give you a sentence from several different uh, traditions. First one is from Spanish Kabbalist Joseph Gigatilla. He says, God fills everything and he is everything. And then Zen master Wang Po says, all the Buddhas and sentient beings are nothing but the one mind, besides which nothing exists. <coughs> and then Hindu saint Anandamoyamai says, in the whole universe, in all states of being, in all forms is he. And then we have a Sufi mystic, uh, Ibn al-Arabi. He says, there is nothing in existence except God. And finally, Christian mystic Meister Eckhart says, God is pure oneness, being free of any multiplicity of distinction. Since all these different traditions the mystics of which you're all testifying to the same reality. And that's what we do here at the center a lot. We talk about how the mystics of all the traditions basically saying the same thing. They have different language. They say it in different ways. But essentially, they're all speaking of the same reality. So the question then is, if all is one then where is the distinction between this gong and the seeing of it? There is this natural sense, or so it appears. It says that I am here and the gong is there. But this teaching of oneness, of non-duality, is saying that there is no seer, no seeing. There is just the seeing. Just the seeing. And in this, this is a timeless sphere. No death, no birth. So, let me ask you, is that your experience? Joel? What's your experience? No Joel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so why isn't this oneness your experience? Why is it that you don't see it if it's so ubiquitous? If, it, if, 
if, if it's everywhere, if everything that arises is actually this non-dual awareness, why don't you see it? Why isn't it obvious? Well, it is obvious. It's right here. There is something, though, that we are doing that is causing us to ignore it. We see something else. We experience something else. What we experience is a separate self. A me. There's me, and there's the gong. The me seems solid. It's real. It's true to us. Why is this true? Why do we feel that that we are a self when the mystics of all these traditions are saying, essentially, there is none. There is just oneness. You know, if it's all one, then how can there be a separate individual self. Well, we've been told that we're separate. We've been told from time immemorial. We have always believed we were a separate self because we're told we're a separate self and we tell ourselves constantly that we are separate. And we tell others that they are separate, and we're all doing it. We're all playing this little game of, I'm real, and therefore you are real. And it seems to work pretty well. It's got us pretty well convinced. It's built into our language. The way we speak is dualistic. And it has to be, of course. Because otherwise we couldn't really have this conversation. We couldn't be here together. So there's a lot more to non-duality than just becoming vast empty space, you know, where everything is just mush. You know, it's all one, so it's like a big bowl of porridge. But here we have all of this multiplicity. But this sense of self is more than just an arising display. It's me. It's me and I demand that I be me. In a very, very real way, we demand it constantly. Our mind is grasping, trying to grasp the reality of me through experience. This false belief in separateness, though, is ultimately sorrow for us. And we've all experienced sorrow. We've also experienced joy in our lives. We experience joy only because this oneness, this non-dual nature, ekes through anyway, because it is our nature. The sense of self spins this veil constantly, moment by moment, But it's not perfect, you know? Because it's just this, it's just a story. It's 
just an impression that's being generated moment by moment, and every now and then it falls away, and we experience joy. We might think the reason that we're experiencing joy has something to do with something else that's taking place in our dualistic life, but that is not the case. Our stories of separateness are here. This is an interesting process, because once we become a self, then we want to have stories that make ourself real. So we keep generating them, but the separateness itself is sorrow, ultimately. And yet, here we are, we're attached to the separateness, striving to keep it going with our stories, constantly being generated. So it's this ultimate paradox. It is belief in separateness in the first place that creates this sense of insecurity. Only the recognition of oneness can bring us security. Nothing else works. Oh, we think we're secure. We build up enough, you know, enough wealth and power in our lives. Whatever we do, we build this up and we tell ourselves, I've got it all under control now. Everything is stable. I'm young. I have a long life. But that's just a story. The insecurity of this self is always here. And as long as we cling to it, we can't see the oneness that is ultimate security. These days we hear the term ideologue a lot in politics. No, he's an ideologue. Ideologue is someone who is loyal to the party doctrine, to the belief of the party. And they cling to it. And in spite of any common sense, they cling to the story of their party. It's an ideologue. And if you've ever listened to people that are affiliated with the Democratic Party, talking to people that are affiliated with the Republican Party, they're like they're from two different planets. They don't believe anything the same. So it's actually a very good analogy for what we do. We are ideologues of self. Our self is our ideology. And we believe our party platform thoroughly. And if we don't, then we work on it. And we don't want to actually talk to those people on the other side, you know, those mystics. And it's rare to find people that show up in places like this. Because when you talk to people, if you talk to mystics, they're starting to tell you something that maybe you don't want to hear. Because this is really not about building up the self. This is about taking it apart to see what's really here, really here. What we find with an ideological perspective is there is no communion. There is no communication. 
there's not even a proper relationship with things because we don't want to hear anything from out there. We just want what we want, what we believe. And so by that very action, we create the out there and we create the in here. But it's all an illusion. It's all imaginary. But we don't know it's imaginary. We believe it. We believe it because we are emotionally bound to it. All of our beliefs are structured around the insecurity of the story of I. The story of I that always has to build itself up. It's interesting, though, once we have this ideological stance, when we have a thought, I thought that. It's not just a thought. And what's maybe worse is that we believe everything it says. Thoughts arise. It's not only my thought, but it's I believe it. I believe the story, what it's telling me, without questioning it. Now, that's kind of miserable. Because what it leads to is I am happy when I get my way and I am unhappy when I don't get my way. If I hear something that I don't like, I turn away from it because it doesn't fit my story of I. And so this likes and dislikes gets built into the mix here. And so we're always doing this. We're always wanting something or trying to get away from something. And it's actually, if you look, it's quite miserable. We become used to it. This is me. This, is, this, this defines the sense of self. And no wonder we're always trying to escape from it. And this is the other piece of this. Here we're clinging to this self with beliefs. And yet we hate. The, the sense of being a self bothers us. Now, we don't even know that it bothers us. We just, if we examine our activity, we will see we're always wanting to go somewhere and do something fun to get away from self. If we can lose ourselves in activities, we feel a lot better. Whenever we forget ourselves, we're happier. It's a very strange, strange little paradox. But if you notice in your own experience, this is actually what is taking place. We feel our greatest, our best, when we've forgotten ourselves entirely. And we feel our worth when we are so fixated on ourselves. And we all know this. I mean, do you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, we learn it, but what, what happens is for most people, people where I work, just in conversations, that's not their experience. What we discover is that whenever we are longing for anything, we are longing to be free of self. Think about things in your life that you're longing for. You're longing for a lover. You're longing for a new car or home. You're longing for that trip to Hawaii. This longing itself is actually a veil 
to the oneness. It's not that we just want something. It's an emotionally driven stance. We want it because it's going to make us happy. And this is why it veils the oneness. When we get what we want, that joy that we experience in the getting is actually a cessation of wanting. It's not the getting the lover or going to Hawaii. It's for a moment. And sometimes it is just a fleeting moment. We actually feel exhilarated, joyful. And if we could just pay attention in that moment, we can see the reason that we feel that way is we aren't being drawn towards something. It's just naked being. But then, of course, we watch. The mind starts to grasp. This is wonderful. Well, I need to go to Hawaii more. You see how it starts playing again? The only reason that happens is because we don't pay attention. Our attention has been trained this way. So we continue to strive. And if we examine desire and aversion deeply, we can discover desire and aversion are really spiritual matters. They are not worldly matters at all. We take them to be worldly, but they are not worldly. And regarding this Rumi, who is a great Sufi poet, who most of you I'm sure are familiar, regarding seeking, Striving. He says, Seek water constantly, O man of dry lips, for your dry lips give witness that in the end you will find the fountain. The lips' dryness is a message from the water. We know that we can be happy, but we just haven't discovered how to do that. Desire and aversion are messages from oneness. In order to not run in circles like we have been our whole life, we must refine our attention. We must train our attention. This is the calling of meditation. This is really what meditation is about is to train it, to give it the freedom to just rest in what is arising now. Just to rest here without running away into thought, without being distracted away because of aversion or grasping for something else because we're bored. We learn to work with all of these things like boredom, Desire. Meditation is the training to be able to see what is here now. Clearly, the sense of self is an illusion that is being manifested moment by moment through a process of very precise inattention. Inattention. 
Meditation does not give you something to believe. It's really the stripping away of belief. But it isn't about stripping it away like, I'm going to get rid of this belief or this belief, just get that out of here. Don't want to have that anymore. It's about seeing the nature of what is being believed, seeing it clearly. And in that seeing, that belief falls away of itself. When we're doing our meditation practice, we can develop expectations. We want to have a good sitting, for example. We want, we're planning on sitting this morning, and then we have to go to work. So we're sitting, and we want to start out our day good. See, we start going with stories right off. We see that. We see those stories when we're, we sit, and then, then the little gong goes off, and we set our timer, and we begin. And we become aware of expectation. Expectations start to bubble up. And we can feel it. And when we recognize expectation, we can just notice it. Just like what I was, when I was explaining at the beginning, the, the simple practice of the breath meditation. You notice the, the emotion. You recognize it. You acknowledge it and then simply return to the breath. So really it's an acknowledging of the things that you are grasping for and resisting. You are just simply acknowledging them, but not acting on them. Not acting on them. And this develops this openness of heart. And this openness of heart that we discover, which is just a softening, a settling of the mind, we are already beginning to notice the oneness, the non-dual nature. It is already showing itself. It is the absence of grasping and pushing away and ignoring that allows us to recognize this oneness. Only in witnessing our stories, definitions and perceptions, free of self-centered grasping, do we discover this baselessness of belief. All belief. All belief. Now, at first, it's not all belief. At first, it's just like, we'll see something and we'll go, Holy smokes, that's all just a, that's just a pretense. I've been believing that my whole life. It just shows itself. And then we'll have another one. And this maybe go, go on for a number of years. You just keep noticing. And through this process, there is just this, you know, at first it's holy smokes. And then it's just sort of, of course, of course. You just see it. It just falls away. <clears throat> We're not trading in one set of beliefs for another. We're not getting rid of duality so that we can have non-duality. It's not another belief. This mindfulness practice that, that comes of meditation. With mindfulness, we witness our world very much as though we were a naturalist. We are witnessing the arising of thoughts, feelings, 
And what we discover is that thoughts and feelings really are the essence of the story of I. And the story of I is the the linchpin, the, the primary belief structure upon which all of our other beliefs are construed and hanging. And without the story of I, all of those beliefs cease to be beliefs. But that doesn't mean that they cease to exist in their form. Their forms remain. Just don't believe them. They're not real things. They are actually this one awareness. And this is something not to believe, but to just discover. So let's look a little closer at this. What is that? Anybody? It's a cloud? Guy who lost his ear. Huh? Guy who lost his ear. He's got an ear? You have to use your imagination. It looks like Don Corleone to me. You know, the, what is that movie? Godfather. Yeah, The Godfather. It's like that guy, doesn't it? Yeah. There he is. What is it, really? Sky and water vapor, is that what it is? It's an image. Yes, it's an image. Where does Don Corleone come from? Somebody said projection. Projection, So So it's not a cloud. It's not water vapor, it's actually an image. Where is this image? Is it up here? If it's in the mind, how do we know it's in the mind? Yeah, it's actually much more straightforward than that. It's intuitive, but it's also very obvious. Can you have anything arise in your awareness that is not awareness? It is so blatantly obvious. But you can see how we fool ourselves. There is this depth. It's like we have have an image, and then we form an image about the image, and then there's another image on that image. Just like this, it's, it's, it's just a, it's an image being projected on the wall. And then within that image, we can see clouds. And then within that image, we can see Don Corleone. And we can probably find other things here. But if we just sort of relax each of those stories, can we see this without seeing a face, first of all? Can you just see clouds? (laughs) Okay, so you're aware of the face. Being aware of the face, now not trying to push the face away. Now you're aware of that mental image being superimposed. Now look at it and see. Can you see just naked cloud? Yes. 
you see the mental image is being superimposed over the cloud. We've looked at that, we can see that all of this is mental, that, that the whole thing is arising in consciousness. From a conventional point of view, what we're looking at, maybe you could call it the base from a conventional point of view, it's just the wall. Yes, it is. It's just a wall with light on it. It's, it's color, it's, it's uh, shadow, it's lines, and then, of course, it's just light. It's just light. And where is this light? We are recognizing that everything is arising in this one consciousness. It's not apart from the awareness of it. The image itself, the seeing itself, is all there is. No seer, no thing seen. Just naked seeing. Now there's a reason why we don't like that. Because it is a negation of me. And immediately the mind starts spinning looking for something, even if it doesn't make any sense, it will, it will justify, it will create some kind of, of validation for dualistic thinking. And the essence of it is that there's nothing wrong with dualistic thinking. Dualistic thinking is just imagination. It is creativity, playing. It's consciousness expressing itself. And it loves to do that. So let's have the next slide here. Okay, so here, don't say it out loud. I want you to just take a look. What do you see? Yes? I see a young woman. You see a young woman. Looking away. Okay. Anybody else here see a young woman? Okay. Does anyone here see an old woman? <laughs> okay, so those of you that see the old woman, can you see the young woman? Yes. Okay, can some of you not see the young woman? Not yet. Okay, if you can't see the young woman, raise your hand. Now, you see an old woman. So, so who would like to explain to Jim? Yeah, go ahead. The smile of the old woman is a necklace on the young woman, and the eye of the old woman is the ear of the young woman. And the jaw of the young woman is the nose of the old woman. Ten. Oh. <laughs> so, you see, this illustrates something of what we're talking about here today. Our way of seeing the world as duality is kind of a gestalt switch. This is a gestalt switch. When we, we see one image and then suddenly, oh, I see the other one. We, something has happened. We've recognized something. And in the case of recognizing non-dual nature, it's a, it can be very sudden, or it has to be a very sudden switch. You suddenly notice that everything is your own mind, so to speak, your own awareness. Everything is this one.
consciousness, if you recognize it in the same way, So, is there anything truly objective here? If it's objective, it is in our dualistic viewing of it. Can you see that everything that is arising in this picture is arising in your own consciousness? And not apart from it. Outside the building, there's a street and cars. Is that true? Probably. (laughs) There is a probability. But is it in fact true? Yes, it's not. You don't know that it is true. In fact, it is not in awareness. If a thought about the street arises, then there is a thought. But that is not the street, is it? How about the distance between you and this image? Doesn't that seem real? I'm here, it's there. That in itself is a quality of consciousness. The sense of depth, the perception of depth, the quality arising in consciousness, not other than this consciousness. Okay, Mike. I'm going to project a flower. Imagine it. Beautiful flower. That little thing up on the hat there. See it? It's a carnation. It's just an image. It's just a story. It's whatever. This this is a real flower. Is it? What makes a real flower? It doesn't change. It doesn't change? It looks like it's changing all the time. Language. Hmm? Language. Language. Yes, language is a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, we, we say it's a real flower. This is a real object, a real thing. And we know what this is. We've seen lots of flowers before. Yes? Well, in a way, it comes down to how you would define real. But in terms of our perception, one of the things that would make one thing real or maybe more real than another thing is that it partakes of all the sensual experiences. Like the flower would have a smell and a view and a feel and a color and a size where what's on the wall only has one. Exactly. Just the visual. Exactly. So, and this is is really how consciousness works to create this incredible display. Because, in fact, smells kind of (laughs) messy. It feels cool. 
firm, round, soft. It makes noise if you rustle it. It does smell musty. <laughs> now this is interesting because this is the way consciousness fabricates. And when you do meditation, you can take it in reverse. And this is a great little exercise sometime. You might try it just for a moment. Close your eyes and put your hand down on the side of your chair and feel the metal of the chair. And now take a look at it. And don't feel it, just look at it. Now look back up again. Did you notice that those two experiences were very different? Feel this chair and the visual of the chair. <clears throat> what you discover is that each of the sense fields are very, very different. But consciousness has spun them together to make them be one object, one thing. Now, this sounds just a little flaky and a little crazy when we're talking about it here. But when you do this meditation in which you actually calm the mind, settle the mind like we did at the beginning, and then you very deliberately and very one-pointedly feel the object and then observe the object, you see that these are, these are very, very different experiences. And you recognize that they are happening, happening sequentially. There is one that is arising, and then the other. What we discover through meditation is that awareness is actually timeless. That it actually doesn't live in time. Awareness is eternity. It is eternal nature. And phenomena arise in it only because it is eternal. When phenomena arise, what is happening, it's, it's, it's easy to get it with sound. There is only momentary arising. So if you listen... Discourses was before a group of 500 monks and nuns, and he stood like this. He did not say a word. He just twirled his flower, and after a little while, one of the monks in the way back suddenly stood up with a big beam on his face bowed, and walked off. That was out of 500 monks and nuns. One of them 
glimpsed something. And what he saw, and what we see when we recognize oneness, is this is your own mind. And when we see this clearly, we recognize this is just now, always now. This is not the same flower as this. Or this. Or this. Or this. Or this. It's just now. You can do practices in which you gaze at objects such as this, holding it very still, and you will notice that it is actually changing. There's something between the the sense of me awareness and the object awareness that starts, they start recognizing one another. And at some point, the two awarenesses meet. And, And there's just the one awareness. So what we have with thought is we believe thought. Let's have a thought. Um, the sun is shining. Okay. Now remember that thought. You remember it? Okay. That that you remember is not the original thought, is it? It can't be. It's a new one. The sun is shining. There it is again. It's new. Each time we have a thought, it is new. Now, when we remember a thought, we're not remembering anything. Not not in the way we believe we remember. It is new. It is always new. It is calling. It is hearkening back to a past that does not exist. So there is a grand illusion being perpetrated. Not that we understand it, It's not about understanding. It's not about a conceptual understanding. But it's about recognizing and letting it be. And in the letting it be, it begins to inform you. And then it ceases to be you that's being informed. Awareness is aware. So the practice, the take-home practice here, for it doesn't matter how much meditation you've done, Only a little will help. Just a little bit. Just settle the mind so that it isn't running off in thought all the time. And then notice through the day, what is it that prevents me from recognizing that this, whatever it is, that, is pure awareness. Naked awareness. This awareness. This is really a process very similar to falling in love. Once we start to glimpse awareness in another, in a stranger, we love them. We we realize that they are ourselves. And so compassion 
flows. It's a it's it's this compassion, this warmth, this recognition that whatever it is is you and not other than you. And it's not about getting stuck in this story of me. Because this you, the self, this little self, in love, we forget ourselves. When we're loving, we forget ourselves. And in forgetting ourselves, we are beginning to recognize this oneness. So we love to see, there I am. That's just another expression of awareness. This is just an expression of awareness. It's all that way. So in closing, I have a little passage from Hafez, a Sufi. And he says, when all I know is love, I find my heart infinite and everywhere. Between lover and beloved, there is no veil. Hafez, thou thyself art thy own veil. Yes? When you were talking, I noticed within myself that I was attracted to the, very attracted to the idea of oneness, but at the same time I was really attracted to the unique self, and I and I felt within myself that I wanted both. I wanted the unique self that was experiencing the oneness. And just a comment. You know, Wonderful. Within it, that I just really hated the unique self, but really appreciated the oneness. Of course. Really, the whole idea of recognizing oneness, the whole thing is we can then appreciate forms in a whole new way. And it deepens our experience of form. You can really appreciate, just like what you said, you really appreciate this form just as it is. You're not wanting it to be different. And so this is, this is what we begin to discover as we do practices. We, we are able to appreciate even things that normally we wouldn't like at all. We recognize it for what it truly is. It's awareness. And then we can actually open to it in a way that we couldn't before. We're willing to be present with whatever. If it's sadness, just hang out in the sadness. Feel sad. And what we find when we're not pulling away from it and trying to distract ourselves is we find this richness in it and this beauty. It's love. you know. It's weird. It's like sadness is... A longing for oneness. Yeah, that. You know, this so much as oneness, but just some of the things you were saying about the nounism, each different position, and the thought is it, as it is at the moment, you know, that there was a thought before. Um, and also basing on uh, every, take every moment as an opportunity for spiritual practice. I was watching, and I did this in a spiritual way the other night, uh, Bill Cosby was on. PBS, the Mark Twain Awards. And I remember, you know, from the 60s, I remember very much Bill Cosby. And as each presentation was done, I was trying to think of this 
Okay, no, this is, I'm thinking these really wonderful thoughts because I remember his rise and I had all his albums and, and it was such an enjoyable, warm, loving thing, but I was really living, reliving or recreating or rerunning the past, but I was enjoying it in the moment, knowing that it was the moment that I was enjoying it, you know, but uh, I was, it, 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 looking at it as much of the spiritual way that I am capable of, I really, it was so enjoyable and um, and I thought, well, I'm really kind of, this is all in the past, and I'm kind of living in this moment here that's not the now. Except I was trying to relate it to the now that I was thinking it now. <laughs> you are experiencing it now. That whole story about it being in the past is just a story. You're having, you're, you're, here you are, you're blissing out on Bill Cosby. But living in the past. You're, yeah, you're being here well, now. Yeah, that's what I was With Bill Cosby. <laughs> but the, see, all that about the past is just a story yeah. that's being created. It's being created now, all of it. So we just recognize there is no past to go back to. I mean, the, the, the befuddledness that we discover when we try to think about timelessness, it's, it staggers the mind. But if you just let it go and be present with what is, and you, it sounds like you would... I had such a warm and loving feeling when it was over. And then I kept thinking, oh, I'm kind of living in the past, and I'm missing the now, but... So can you see that you weren't living in that? I, I did because I was looking at it that way, saying, okay, this is now, okay. and I'm enjoying it now. And um, yeah, I, I put that together. And, and sometimes I do stuff like that, and I think, uh-oh, i got to get back to the now. And you know, I kind of correct myself. Uh, but I didn't do that then. I enjoyed it. There it is, whatever it is. I enjoyed it. Very good. There's humor in this. There's a lot of humor. The way the self is, you know, the way it shatters on and tells itself all these things, and then it believes the stories, and, and in a moment of clarity, you watch the mind, and it's like, holy smokes, how can, that's not even believable, it's just, it's out there. But in our, when we're identified with self, it's like, yep, it's my thought, and yep, it's true. And it gets us into all kinds of mischief. Yes, sure. I want to comment on that because I saw a bit of that, and one this my favorite is bits on that of jazz. He tells the story about as a young man, he dreamed of being a great jazz drummer, and he's in a club with professional musicians, and they have like an amateur night you sit in. So he jumps up with his sticks and he starts trying to play, and then the whole thing is downhill from there. <laughs> Absolutely hysterically funny, and the thing about it is. You see, if you were experiencing this from the point of view of a self, it would be just torture. You'd be so embarrassed. You'd just be screwing up in the whole thing, you know. But if, from a, if you just shift the angle, it's a, it's a comedy. So the, the very situation that would cause you, you know, extreme agony, embarrassment, and all that, if you could see the humor in it and dis, uh, disidentify from that, it's happening to me, it becomes hysterically funny. It's just one of the funniest bits. Of I remember Bill Cosby. <laughs> Any other comments, questions? Till we meet again. Peace, you all.